Our preaching text this morning will be from Psalm 69. Brother Brent read it in its entirety. Our focus this morning will be verses 16 and following. I'll, I'll tell you in advance, this is actually when I preached this at, at, in Conroe all a year or so ago. I actually preached this in two parts. So the first part, we really wrestled with how to read the psalm. You'll see in the original inspired inscription, it's a psalm of David. David was the human author of the psalm. Of course, we know the Holy Spirit is, is ultimately the author of all scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. But David is the human author, so one voice, if you will, as you read the psalm, you read it through the voice of David. And then you might imagine the various circumstances in, in David's life in which this might have applied. But secondly, and, and crucially, we also need to discipline ourselves to read this psalm, and, and indeed all of the psalms, through the voice of Christ. Psalm 69 is quoted no less than six times in the New Testament, immediately being attributed to Christ. The apostles put these words in the mouth of Christ. And thirdly, we read this as the body of Christ, through the voice of Christ's body, the church. So we can read this on those three different those three different voices, if you will. And, and you can either go and listen to that sermon and kind of understand those arguments for those three voices, or you can take my word for it. I don't recommend the latter. But we, we need to understand what, what's going on in Psalm 69. He opens, David opens with this description of immense suffering. In fact, he uses a, a metaphor. A really vivid description. Look at what happens in verse 1. Save me, O God. I'm reading from the ESV. For the waters have come up to my neck. If you've ever had a, a near drowning kind of experience, or even just that momentary sense of the water's deeper than I thought. And I don't know that I have the strength to make it to the edge of the pool or to the shore. When I was in, in high school and, and for a portion of time in college, I was a lifeguard. And, and, a, and, and not an insignificant portion of our training was self-defense moves. Self-defense moves. Can you imagine why? If you've ever been around someone who's, who's in the water and panicking, they will take you down too. And so David opens with this sort of universal sense of, of fear and foreboding. You don't have to have ever drown to, to, to imagine that's a pretty scary way to go. But it's even worse than just water. Look what he says. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my, weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. See, David's giving us a metaphor. And again, he's speaking about, we don't know which, but a particular episode of intense suffering in his own life in which he could compare it to being stuck in deep mire. There's nothing to grab hold of. You try to claw and scratch even with your feet. There's no purchase to be found. There's no grip to be had. There's no way out. You've cried out for help and no one has come. Your throat is parched. You've cried so long and so loudly and no one has come. And it's not a difficult situation to imagine the fear, the despair that overtakes you. Often, often in the history of the church, the history of God's people, 
we can say something similar has applied, can't we? Where God's people, either individually or collectively, cry out, how are we going to be delivered? How are we going to be rescued? How will we persevere? How will we endure this suffering? And perhaps as you sit here this morning, suffering has come to you. And so the words that you read in Psalm 69 are not foreign. And perhaps it's a betrayal, a, a loss of trust, a significant sin against you. And, and you face the bitter sting of betrayal of one year. Maybe you face a sudden loss. Someone has died. Or, or, the, or the, the bitter sting of illness and, and the fragility of your own body has been pressed upon you. There are all kinds of ways that suffering can come. Some is sometimes as a consequence of our own sin and folly. And now you're facing the bitter consequences of that sin. You cry out, how long will this last? How long must I endure this? One of the beautiful things about the Psalms that God has given is this as a gift to his people. The Psalms have given expression to the full range of human emotions. I dare say there's not a single human emotion that's ever been felt that's not addressed in some way or another in the book of the Psalms. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit of God helps us at times in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And sometimes, because the, the air in which we breathe, and this in our modern evangelical sort of melu, there's this, the air that we breathe is sort of charismatic. And so by default, we tend to think, when we read passages like this, that there's some sort of immediate download. It's almost like your iPhone has updated to a new software, and you think the Spirit of God is just going to download something to you, and now you'll have a new file, a new update that will show you how to pray. That's not the way it works. How does God ordinarily teach us to pray? Through the certain, sufficient, and infallible word. So as we open Psalm 69, we have before us, and what I'm going to offer to you is how to pray in the midst of suffering. Because here's what happens. Not if. When suffering comes, we forget the basics. When suffering comes, we forget what we already knew. When suffering comes, we, we regress to spiritual infants. And that's an almost universal experience. So what has to happen? You have to practice. You have to rehearse. You have to train. Several years ago, I, I served as a, a volunteer chaplain for the Conroe Fire Department in one of their firehouses. My favorite poster, you know, there's all these kind of motivational posters. Most of them are kind of corny. But they had one that was really great. And it said this. It says that Amateurs train until they get it right. Professionals train until they don't get it wrong. You hear the difference? What Psalm 69 gives to us it is a window into God's, God's help to us in praying, and particularly in the midst of suffering, so that we can train and train and train so that these things become reflexive. When trouble comes, how do you respond? Is, is there an immediacy to that response? Is it conditioned ahead of time? Or do you wait until sorrow comes and then try to search through in the midst of your tears to figure out how to pray? 
Psalm 69 is just such a help. As David compares the terror and agony of drowning, the water coming up to his neck, unable to get even a foothold because of the deep, slippery, slimy clay. And poetically, he describes this suffering as, as terrifying. It's, it's unending. It's, it's all-consuming. It's, in his case, utterly undeserved. And suffering can come from all different kinds of places. And it comes to us, excuse me, in all ways. It comes internally. It can come from external causes. It can be from spiritual effects. It can be from physical things that can happen to us. I want to put five things before you as we look beginning in verse 16. I'm going to just guide us through. I'm not going to, Brother Brett has already read the psalm in its entirety. I'm going to read snippets as we go. Five things that for which we ought to pray, and, and particular ways that we seek the face of God in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Number one, let's look at verse 16 and 17. We pray based on God's good character. And, and, and didn't I say that these things are sometimes exactly the opposite of what we will do by nature? We have to practice these things. We have to rehearse these things because this doesn't come naturally to us when we get hit. Look at verse 16. David cries out, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste answer me. David prayed with urgency that in the very midst of his deep suffering, he would know this, that he would know the goodness of God. That he would know the goodness of God. And perhaps no other description of God's character better summarizes his attributes than, than this, his goodness. His goodness. In fact, this idea of God's goodness is a frequent theme. As you read through the Psalms, in Psalm 31, for example, and I could give you dozens, but in Psalm 31, you don't have to turn here, just, just listen to it. In verse 19, how great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have worked for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. David says here, this, how great is your goodness, which you have stored up for the sons of men. Charles Spurgeon said, remember the goodness of God in the frost of adversity. It's an image, isn't it? It's a vivid image. The frost of adversity. Remember the goodness of God there. Now, David actually uses three different words here in these two verses, which, which together reinforce one another. He speaks here of God's loving kindness, his goodness, and his mercy. The ESV says steadfast love. Other translations might say loving kindness. It's a Hebrew word for which there really is no simple English translation. We really need a couple of good solid paragraphs to translate that one Hebrew word. But it's the, it's the Hebrew word has said. It's his loving kindness. It's his covenant faithfulness. It's his steadfast love. Ian Dugan says this is the most precious use of the word hesed in the Old Testament is as a description of what God does. Having entered into a covenant relationship with his people, God bound himself to act toward them in certain ways, and he is utterly faithful to his own self-commitment. See, by the blood of Christ, by the atoning work of our Savior, God has then yoked himself, 
bound himself to an oath. And in that oath, he says, I will deal with my people according to mercy. According to my goodness. Not according to condemnation. Not according to wrath, which has been poured out upon the Son. But according to goodness. Saints, this is, this is absolutely vital for us to understand with, with respect to David's prayer, but also how do we give voice to David's prayer? How do we take those words for our own? It was not his own righteousness for which he... Which, well, that was not the basis of his prayer. It wasn't his own righteousness. I mean, even though in this particular case, David was suffering without immediate cause of his own. And yet he didn't plead his own righteousness. It was not his own merit. It was not his own perfection. But he could appeal to God in prayer because God had already obligated himself to deal kindly with David. To deal with David according to mercy. And saints, this is true for you. If you're in Christ, the same covenant applies to you. That God has already pre-committed. He's already obligated himself in advance to deal with you kindly. To deal with you according to his goodness. To deal with you according to your mercy, to his mercy. Do you pray with that kind of confidence? Do you come trembling, fearful before him, saying, Oh Lord, please, will you, I know I don't deserve this. Or are you saying, God, because of the blood of Christ, I'm resting and trusting in your mercy and your goodness toward me. Even in sin, even in sorrow, even in persecution, David could call upon the Lord with confidence and say, Answer me, O Yahweh, for your loving kindness, your loyal love, your covenant love is good. And he could rest there. Brothers and sisters, even in the midst of trial, trouble, persecution, sorrow, suffering, we must pray, we must ask God to remind us in that moment of his goodness. Because isn't that the first thing that we forget? When, when, when trouble comes, in our, according to our own flesh, we will forget that very simple but profound truth that God is good. Because our eyes tell us something different. Our ears tell us something different. Everything in us and our flesh is screaming at us something different about God in that moment. But God's word says he is good. All that he does is good. All that we receive from his hand is good. His faithfulness, his loving kindness, his mercy, his loyal love are those things for which we ought to cry out, God, give me the eyes to see this and cling to this in this moment. So David prayed. Our Lord Jesus prayed according to the same thing. And we ought to pray according to God's goodness. So I ask you, do you find this difficult in the midst of suffering? Whether it's those minor, ordinary daily kinds of sufferings that we have with our own sin, with the sins of others around us, when we are offended, sinned against. When, when we see the, the, the world around us causing increase, increasing measure of hardship upon Christians, upon the churches of Jesus Christ, how tempted are we to forget the goodness of God? And this is all the more reason that we have to train, isn't it? Paul says, Paul taught Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to train yourself for godliness. This is one of the things for which we ought to train. That reflexively we condition ourselves, we train ourselves to remember the goodness of God. But David's reply reflects more than a, a superficial understanding of God's goodness. 
David prays that God will accomplish an eternal good in us, not merely deliverance from an unpleasant circumstance, but that he will accomplish an eternal good in us. We see this in the next few verses, beginning in verse 18. We pray, first for God's that God would make known his goodness to us and we would remember his goodness. But secondly, we pray for God's redemptive work in us in the midst of suffering. This is one of those other things that we don't often think about. In fact, we can very easily forget when suffering comes, we are focused on our circumstances. We're, we're focused on getting out of this, of shortening the length of time, of, of, of mitigating the duration of our suffering, Rather than saying, God, what are you doing to me and with me in the midst of this hardship? Look at verse 18. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, rescue me from my enemies, or rescue me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Surely you recognize those words taken up by our Savior himself. David cries out in verse 18, redeem me, ransom me, or even better translated, set me free. Set me free from my enemies. Even when suffering and sorrow is caused by something outside of you. Do you realize that even then, even when you know this particular suffering has not been the immediate effect of some sin that I have committed, this is something that's happened to me, and yet even then, there is a necessity of us praying that we will be delivered from an enemy that remains within us. Even then, the enemy from whom you need deliverance the most is the sin and the unbelief that resides within you. Saints, this takes practice. It, it, it takes an intentional conditioning of the heart and conditioning of the mind to think in this way. In the midst of sorrow, of hurt, of betrayal, in the midst of physical suffering and illness, in the midst of heartache and suffering of any kind, the least natural thing that we do in that moment is to seek sanctification. What we want is for the hurting to stop. What we don't often think to ask for is, God, will you use this sorrow, this hurt, to make me more like Jesus? To grant to me the grace of perseverance. Do you know that the Bible teaches that even the perfect, sinless, spotless, Perfect Son of God learned obedience by that very means. In fact, in the passage that we read today out of Hebrews 5, in your own hearing, you heard this. He, in the days of his flesh, this is Jesus, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. The sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God, according to his human nature, learned obedience to his Father. 
Now, this is good news for us. If you are in Christ, two things have happened. If you've responded to the gospel command to believe, in that moment, your sins were pardoned. They were washed away. And also, the perfect, sinless, spotless righteousness of Christ was also credited to your account. Our Savior suffered perfectly. So that, not if, but when, you fail to suffer perfectly. You can cling to the hope that another's righteousness is yours. Your standing before your Father does not depend upon your own righteous suffering, but the righteous suffering of another on your behalf. So on the authority of God's infallible word, we know that our Lord Jesus had, had no spot, no wrinkle in his holy character. He was utterly sinless. And yet, he attained perfection by means of suffering. And yet, you think you can do it without suffering. You think you can grow best with prosperity and comfort and ease. When even your Savior, the Scriptures tell us, learned obedience. He was perfected through the very suffering that God brought about. By means of his conception by the Holy Spirit, and instead of men, instead of by mere man, our Lord did not inherit the sinful nature that you and I have. He did not inherit the sinful nature of Adam. Never in his life did he ever sin. So let's think this through. If it were necessary for the perfect, sinless, spotless Christ to suffer in order to obtain perfection, what is your plan? <clears throat> Where is your home? What do you expect? That's why James said in James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. Now, that's either crazy talk, or it is the necessary truth that we ignore at our own peril. It's one of the two. It's either just the, the, the rantings of a lunatic to be joyful in the midst of suffering, or it is the prescription that we desperately need. Count it, my, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing, believing by faith, that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect or complete work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, Jesus introduced to his, his disciples a number of paradoxes that, that still men still wrestle with. If you want to be first, what do you have to do? Be last of all. If you want to lead, what do you have to do? Be servable. And here, you want perfection? You want completion? You want to learn perseverance? That doesn't come on the easy road. That doesn't come on the smooth road. That doesn't come without suffering. The maturity that, that you want, the maturity that I want, comes ordinarily through suffering. Do we pray like that, though? When suffering comes, do we say, as James did, Lord, I praise you that you have brought this opportunity to me, an opportunity to grow me. It is unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. Your word tells me that no discipline is pleasant in the moment, but it brings forth fruit. And then you as parents, you know this, as you discipline your own children, hopefully, you're faithful to do that, despite their cries, despite the fact that they, that they weep when they are disciplined and chastised according to the scripture, 
But you as a parent can have the ability to see further down the road than the child can. And you know that the, the momentary steam on their posterior is far easier to deal with than the troubles that they will find if they are not disciplined today. And so you discipline in faith. Or our Lord said, if, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to his children? Our Father is wise, saints. He knows exactly what we need in order to be conformed to the image of his Son. Have you ever trained yourself in a particular discipline that requires frequent practice? Brother Jeff and I were talking just before Sunday school. You, you all know he's, he's a French horn player. He's, he's tutored and trained countless numbers of students. If you learn a musical instrument, it, it requires constant practice, discipline. You get a lot wrong before you ever get it right. If you've learned to, to any kind of, of artistic endeavor, painting or modeling or sculpting, if you've done any kind of sports, you know that the, the goal of, of creating that kind of muscle memory, where you don't have to stop and think, it just your body just knows how to swing the club, swing the bat, throw the spiral, whatever it is. Some of you like to shoot pistols and rifles, and you, you know you have to practice regularly, but you have to practice in the right way. If you practice wrong, what do you learn? Wrong things. If you talk to any music teacher, any coach, any, any weapons instructor, any counselor, what you find is that the hardest work is overcoming bad habits, bad posture, bad form, bad technique, bad habits that, that have been acquired by someone learning on their own and practicing the wrong way. And we have to realize that by default, by default, by nature, we practice suffering the wrong way. That's our default position. Three years ago, we were at a conference, and, and Paul Tripp, some of you know that the name, was speaking, and he had a he had a, a bottle of water, and he stood in front of the people and he shook it at the top of it, and he shook it, and he asked people, "Why did water come out of that bottle?" And someone in the front row said, because you shook it. He said, well, true enough, but let me, let me rephrase the question. Why did water come out of that bottle? Because that's what was inside. And his point was, when we are shaken, what comes out of us is what's inside of us. Isn't that what Jesus said? It's not what comes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. Right? A man speaks out of the overflow of his heart. And similarly, in the midst of suffering, our bad habits come out, don't they? And maybe it's, it's bad habits with your tongue. Maybe it's bad habits with your time. Maybe it's bad habits with, with all kinds of self-medication, whether that's video game or food or drink or some anything else, sleep, whatever it is, even good gifts that God has given to us, we can abuse and in a sense self-medicate. The habits of self-reliance, anger, impatience, the, the, the habits of blame-shifting, of pride, of despair. And that list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? You could probably, we put a whiteboard up here and just spend a few minutes brainstorming. We could come up with all kinds of, of ways that we deal with suffering. And I'm not telling you anything you already know is true. 
You, you can easily, very easily make your own list of your pet bad habits that come out in the midst of suffering. Some of yours will be pretty much in common with everyone, and others may be unique to you. But are you willing to think about that ahead of time? Think, where, where am I likely to go? Where am I likely to seek refuge and relief when suffering comes? But do you know what a perfect, good, and loving Heavenly Father does for His children? He disciplines them. He disciplines you. By way of suffering, just as He did to His only begotten Son, and, but not because He's opposed to you, not because he is, His will is contrary to you, but because He loves you. He loves you infinitely. He loves you perfect. And His discipline is a perfect expression of His goodness to you. Saints, do you believe this? Do you, do you believe that according to the goodness and mercy of your trying God, He will use your suffering to conform you more and more progressively to the very image of His Son? So, how do we pray in the midst of suffering? We've learned two so far. One, we remind ourselves in prayer of God's good character. We, we remind ourselves of God's goodness. And secondly, we ask Him to use our suffering to sanctify us, to perfect us for His glory and, and for our eternal good. We, we can't lose sight of this. God is not preparing us for, for, for more life in this world. He's preparing us to be face-to-face -face with him in glory for eternity. That's going to take some refining to get there, isn't it? Let's look at a third way that we ought to pray. You see this in verse 22. We pray for God to deal justly with his enemies. See, this is not so heavenly-minded as the saying goes that it's no earthly good to us. There is a necessity, there is an oughtness of praying with respect to our enemies. Look at verse 22. This is Psalm 69, incidentally, is, is in a category of psalms referred to as imprecatory psalms. Maybe you've heard that term. Imprecation means a curse or a condemnation. And so we often find in the psalms that there is condemnation and cursing called upon or called for by the psalmist to God for his enemies. We find this here. David says, let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let, their, let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you have struck down. They, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And again, three voices here. The voice of David, the voice of Christ, and the voice of the church in every age. We pray for God to deal justly with his enemies. Brothers and sisters, we, we've had the blessing of God upon us, upon our nation, for, for, for all of us in this room, for our entire lifetimes. We've had God's common grace poured out upon our nation in such a way that we have not faced 
the kind of violent persecution that our brothers and sisters, even at this very hour, face in other parts of the world. Or certainly throughout history, the Church of Jesus Christ has faced in many places, in many circumstances. We've been spared that, but we have no assurance, zero assurance from the Word of God that that will always be the case. There is not something in the Scripture, despite what you might hear on TBN or something, that says that America is under some sort of special protection. It isn't true. And we pray in such a way that we, we remind ourselves not only the good, goodness of God and that he will use our present sorrows and suffering to, to perfect us, to conform us to his image, but it's also right for us to pray that God would deal justly with his enemies. God would deal justly with his enemies. There's not an automatic conflict here. Sometimes in our minds, we think, well, that, that seems disharmonious. That, that seems disconnected. That we can pray for the gospel advance of the kingdom, and then we also can pray that God would deal justly with his enemies. In our minds, sometimes that seems contradictory or even incompatible. But there's not a conflict between those. We may and ought to do both. And God has given us his spirit-written prayer book to help us. Because will we admit this temptation? It's at this particular point that we might most grievously err. We might forget the admonition for both the Old Testament and the New, that vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord, leave room for wrath. We might forget that. We might particularly go to this section and go, oh, okay, I'm not so much praying for my sanctification, but I am willing to pray for holy hellfire to rain down on my enemies. That, that's, that's no problem. I'll pray for that. But God has given us his perfectly inspired, spirit-written prayer book that by praying the very words of the Psalms, we will find the help that we need in order to pray righteously before our God and King. I found an example. This is this was an article on, on Legionnaires several months ago. This is Pastor Valerie Zadarinitsky. He's a Reformed Presbyterian pastor in Ukraine. And he's writing about, um, he's a lecturer at the Evangelical Reformed Seminary in Kiev. And he's, he's currently, at the time he wrote this, he was in Odessa, Ukraine. And he's describing the plight of the church under those war-torn conditions. And he says this, For every Christian, the following question is especially urgent now. How do we hate evil and also love our enemies who commit egregious crimes? Isn't that a, a good question? How is it that we hate evil and also love our enemies who commit egregious crimes? We are no longer conceptualizing this question theoretically. Two truths are especially valuable for us now. One, God's just retribution at the cross of our Lord. Our hearts are comforted in the truth of God's retribution. He will repay his unrepentant enemies in a way that we could never have done ourselves. Our hearts are humble before the cross of Calvary. We, as well as our enemies, deserve the wrath of God. But God has reconciled us to himself with the blood of his son. We were under the power of the devil, just like everyone else, but God redeemed us with the blood of Christ. We pray for the repentance of our enemies so that God will free them 
from the power of the devil's deception. We believe we'll come out as victors. We know that evil is defeated by the cross and the resurrection of our Lord. We know that whatever our enemies do to us, we will be resurrected. Because God has united us with Christ, therefore we celebrate the victory of the Lord. The main battle took place and the main enemy was defeated by the cross. So we can pray that God would defeat his enemies. And God may choose to do that one of two ways. God may choose, if they remain unrepentant, to cast them into the eternal lake of fire on the day of his return. But God also, God also may choose to destroy them by means of the gospel. Do you know, if you were in Christ, that the old man is dead, the one that was once an enemy of God? Didn't get rehabbed, he didn't get reformed, he didn't get rebuilt, he got killed and raised from the dead with Christ. You're a new creation, not a remodified one or a, a, a rehabbed. You're a new creature. And we can pray that God may kill his enemies in either way. We don't know which he will choose. But we can pray in that way. In fact, we ought to pray in that way. And I think, I think here, uh, Pastor Zadarinzi strikes the right balance in his thinking. He's praying earnestly for the grace to love his enemies, and at the very same time, taking genuine gospel comfort in the fact that God will pour out his wrath on those who do not repent and turn to Christ. Sometimes those can feel contradictory in our minds, but they're not. We can pray that God will defeat his enemies. He will do so infallibly, inevitably, one way or the other, he will defeat his enemy. If you were in Christ, he's already defeated you. You've already raised the white flag of surrender and bowed your knee to Christ. And now, you who were once in the kingdom of darkness have been transferred to the kingdom of God's own son. Once you were not his people, and now you are his people. Once you were an enemy and a foe, and now you are counted a friend and a brother. So we pray in that way. And for those here this morning who may not even understand those categories. Because even at this very moment, you remain outside of Christ. Will you hear that the word of God clearly pronounces upon you a condemnation? You were born at enmity with God. You were born on the other side of the battle line. You were born in an enemy camp. Taking up arms, whether you are consciously aware of it or not, against the Lord and against his people. And the gospel call to you is to repent. To believe the gospel of Jesus Christ that he died so that you could be transferred out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's own beloved son. Will you believe that? Will you put your faith, your hope, your trust in Christ as your King and Lord and turn from your sin and believe? That he will keep you. That he will hold you fast. That he will cleanse you and pardon you and prepare you for an eternity. See, when our suffering is caused by the actions of others, especially the willful, the wicked actions of others, we're tempted to vent our own wrath, our We will be tempted to seek vengeance ourselves. We will be tempted to cultivate sinful anger in our hearts. We will be tempted to despair. 
to worldly grief and sorrow. And Psalm 69 can be a wonderful help to us to pray as, as we ought to pray for God's justice upon his enemies. Fourthly, I'm going to move pretty quickly. Fourthly, we pray for a heart of praise to please our God. Look at verse 29. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. See, back in verse 9, Jesus Christ prayed, Zeal for your house has consumed me. And now his church, following after him, must pray the same. His church ought to be known by the same characteristic. And Psalm 69 helps us to pray as we ought to pray. O oh Lord, cause my heart to be zealous for your worship. Open my heart and my mouth to praise your name, O oh God. We ought to pray that that would be our heart's cry. Because again, by nature, in suffering, that isn't our cry, is it? we're more likely to shake our fist at God and express our displeasure with his providence than we are to praise him. If you were to ask David, how did you demonstrate your zeal for God's house? He would have said, well, like every faithful Jew, I brought sacrifices and offerings at the appointed feast days. I brought them to the appointed place of worship. And under the old covenant, the zeal of David and all the saints was expressed in what the writer of Hebrews later called the copies and shadows of heavenly things. The whole lives of the faithful were ordered around that sacrificial system. But now, under the new covenant, that entire system, that entire system of sacrifices and offerings and, and grain offerings and tithe offerings and bulls and goats and pigeons and all this kind of thing, it's all been fulfilled in Christ. It's all been fulfilled in Christ. No longer do the people of God demonstrate their zeal for God through the blood of bulls and goats, but rather we demonstrate our zeal for the worship and praise of God by gathering under his new covenant ordinances. We read his word, we sing his praises, we lift up our prayers in the name of Jesus, our mediator. We preach and hear the word of God. We observe the Lord's Supper, which commemorates our Lord's once-for-all-time sacrifice for his people and his sure promise of returning again. So how do we express our zeal for the house of the Lord? How do we pray as David prayed? How do we pray and ask for the Lord to give us the praise of the name of God with a song? How do we ask for the Lord to help us magnify him with thanksgiving? Zeal for God's house ought to consume the Christian even more that it consumed David. I say even more because we have greater light than David had. David says that when, he, when the world saw how he worshipped God, the fervency, the frequency, the intensity of his worship, that the world hated him for it. Remember, even at one point, his own wife mocked him for it. Nowhere does this appear more today than a Christian's commitment to the Lord's day. You ever notice that? Have you ever had to take a stand, even in your own family, 
in your own social circles, that the zeal that I have for the Lord's house that consumes me is reflected in my commitment to the Lord's day, to honoring the Sabbath as holy. If you've ever taken a stand, taken a stand on that, you know it's not a popular position. Even among other professing Christians, it's not a popular position. Do those close to you know your zeal for the worship of Christ? Again, under the Old Covenant, someone would have known the faithfulness of a Jew even by what he wore, by, by what days he set aside throughout the year for certain festivals and feast days, what he ate or what he drank. And we're no longer marked by those things. The Christian zeal for the Lord is marked by a commitment to gathering with the saints, being numbered among God's people publicly on the day that God has appointed for worship. And I remember well those early days of, of our marriage and young children and having to draw some lines with friends and family and saying, if you have the, the family reunion, the birthday party, the sporting event on the Lord's day, we won't be there. We would like to participate in those things. But if it's on the Lord day, the Lord requires us to honor him on that day. Not to honor these other things. He's given us six days to pursue all those other things. And uh, someone will say, but I can just as well worship God in private. I can worship God on the lake and the ball field and the tree stand among my family just as well as I can gathered among God's people. Do you know that's not the pattern anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament? You don't find that. You find God's people gathering under the covenant ordinances that God had given to them. To them. And to some of you, Psalm 69 should be an encouragement in this area to persevere in what you're already doing. Honoring the Lord's day, of keeping the Sabbath. But for some, for some, you need the grace of repentance in this area. You need a reformation in your thinking and your actions with respect to the Lord's day. Some have established a pattern of prioritizing many other things rather than gathering on the Lord's day for the public means of grace. David says, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving, and this will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young goat or a young bull. Dear Christian, do you pray that God will make you more zealous for his worship? See, again, this is one of those many things that in the midst of suffering, that's not what we usually think about. Here's what normally happens when someone is suffering. I, can, I have seen this an uncountable number of times pastorally, but long before I was in pastoral ministry, I've witnessed it in my own soul. I've seen it among my brothers and sisters. When adversity comes, we are more like the old dog that gets hit by a car and he goes up under the porch by himself and growls at anybody who comes near. Maybe I'll come out again, maybe I won't. And the Christian, when we suffer, what's that natural impulse? We retreat. We see solitude. We see isolation. Do you know that's 180 degrees away from what's profitable to us? See, this again, this is, takes training. It takes discipline. When we pray, even in the midst of suffering, Lord, cause me to come to be gathered with your people. Even if it hurts. Even if it is difficult for me. Because people might, people might ask me about my suffering. And I'll have to talk about it. 
They might ask if they can pray for me, and I don't want my stuff to be known by other people. God has given us a community for a reason. He's designed for us to bear one of those burdens and sorrows, but also to train ourselves, even in the midst of that sorrow, to lift up our voices. Even as we sing hymns together, as you lift up your voice in song, you are confessing the faith. You are instructing the brothers and sisters around you. God has given you a voice in the midst of your suffering to praise Him. Will you do that? Or will you follow your flesh and hide, retreat, withdraw? Fifthly, fifth way in which we pray in the midst of suffering. We pray in confidence that Christ will indeed preserve His church. See, in that middle section, we're praying against our enemies and against their work. We can also at the same time pray confidently that they're not going to win. They don't have the final word. The victory has already been won. Again, we have a greater light than David ever had. Yahweh has come in the person of the Son. God has clothed himself with human flesh. He has assumed our nature. And now the victory is certain. Look at verse 34. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion. Who is Zion? It's the church. It's the church. God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. That's a classic Hebrew parallel statement. Hebrew poetry often makes parallel synonyms that build upon and reinforce each other. Zion and Judah are synonyms to describe God's covenant people. God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell there. Saints, that's a precious promise. God is not going to forsake his church. The work of building his kingdom will not falter. Despite what your eyes may see, despite what your ears may hear on the news, despite what you will, will, will kind of sense around you in the darkness of our times, we may think it looks like our side is losing. I think the Apostle Paul sanctified the use of sports metaphors. Uh, through his talk a lot, a lot about boxing and racing and wrestling and all these kinds of things. You know, if you watch a sporting event, I hear there's one later today. If you watch a sporting event, sometimes a little ticker at the bottom will show percentage of winning. You know, one team scores a touchdown and their, their percentage of winning goes up. And see, we can be deceived sometimes. We think, we look at the, what, who gets elected to this office or what's going on in this sphere, and we think, well, the percentage of winning for the church has gone down. The win probability has faltered. Don't believe that. The needle hasn't moved. The needle's already pegged over to 100%. Regardless of what you see, regardless of what you hear, the Lord Jesus Christ, again, he prayed these words for us. He is praying these words now for us as he intercedes for us. God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name Praise God for his goodness. As we pray in faith that God will indeed, indeed redeem, 
preserve and ultimately glorify his church. We, we pray that as long as the Lord tarries, that he will preserve his church in generations to come. And we don't take this for granted. It's, it's a certainty, and yet we pray for it. And we pray tangibly. Do, do you pray in your homes? Do you pray as a congregation for the salvation of the children among us? That God would have a remnant in the next generation? Do we have that kind of multi-generational view of the gospel? Do we pray for the salvation of our neighbors? As you drove into church this morning, you drove through your neighborhoods and around the, the, the community. And you see people going and scurrying here and there about all kinds of business that has nothing to do with the praise of the triune God. Do you pray for the lostness that's all around you? That God would raise up a new generation of faithful men and women. Do you pray for the Lord to raise up workers for the harvest for the next generation. Our Lord Jesus says, call upon the Lord of the harvest and pray. Pray that he would provide more workers for the harvest. Remember the reason Jesus gave? You, you, must, you must pray this way because the fields are wide unto harvest. The, the, the harvest is so plentiful, we need more laborers to help carry it in. Do we pray like that? Do we think about it in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Paul's Envisions four generations. He says to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, teach to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Four generations in one little verse. And Paul's not thinking in terms of three to six months out. He's thinking generations. Do we pray like that? God is going to preserve the church. God is going to save Zion. He's going to build up the cities of Judah. Do we pray like we believe? support the work of the ministry now and storing up our support for future generations. In the midst of overwhelming sorrow and suffering, Psalm 69 stands as a powerful help to our praying. And I encourage you to think back through the psalm. In, in your own devotions and your family time, go back through and, and reread Psalm 69, and think about it in these ways. We pray that God will remind us of his goodness, of his covenant love and faithfulness. Will we pray that God will sanctify us in the midst of suffering and sorrow and conform us more and more to the image of his own precious Son? Will we pray that God will deal justly with his enemies? Will we train ourselves? That when, not if, when difficulty comes, are we praying that God will deal justly with his enemies? Not, not according to my standard of justice, not according to your standard of justice, that God will deal objectively in justice towards his enemies. Will we pray for the hearts, for hearts in, our, in our own minds, our own thinking that will praise God in the midst of suffering? That doesn't come naturally to us. We need the supernatural work of the Spirit of God in us to produce that praise. And we pray in confidence. Christ is indeed establishing this church. That all of his promises are going to be fulfilled. Zion is going to be established. The cities of Judah are going to be fulfilled.
Let's pray and ask for the Lord to apply these things to us. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in us in such a way that we hide this word in our hearts and we not, we're not sinning against you. I pray for my brothers and sisters of Waco Family Baptist Church. I'm so grateful for our partnership with them in the gospel, the fellowship that we enjoy together in Christ. I pray that you would work among them and work among the saints in Conroe. Put these things into practice. That you will give us grace to discipline ourselves according to the scriptures. To pray as your perfect and infallible word has instructed us to pray. For your glory and for our good, we ask these things. Amen.